So yesterday we saw that Jacob locked horns with the angel. And he's on the verge of victory. And the angel touched the hollow of his thigh and he was crippled. He was writhing in pain. But he demanded that he be blessed. And he was called Israel, a striver with God, to one day be a prince with God in God's coming kingdom. And so then we, we saw yesterday that, that something had changed in Jacob. That momentous night when a name was changed. But really, to see what really has changed in Jacob, we need to look at what happens the morning after. To see what really has changed, the depth of that change in this man. And we're going to tie up a number of loose knots and loose ends this morning. And we're going to reflect on some life-changing lessons. So let's just open up our Bibles, if they're not open, to Genesis chapter 33. And we recall that what, what is building in the minds of a reader is this chilling showdown between Esau and Jacob. They have been separated now for, for two decades, and this, this final confrontation is about to take place. And, and Esau had already vowed that he was going to take the life of Jacob. And Esau was this mighty hunter, a predator. And there was a target on Jacob, his brother. To appease the situation, remember, in chapter 32, 580 animals were sent. And you can see that in verse 13 and 14 and 15 of chapter 32, how the messenger went off in these groups of animals as a gift, as a, as a present notice there in verse 13 and 18. And as we we work through here, as we work through chapter 32, and we see this encounter between the angel and Jacob, what's building in our minds as the reader is this explosive clash between Esau and Jacob. There's already been a wrestling the night before, and surely the, the reader is anticipating some, something of, of equal measure the following morning. And what happened? As we've just read with Brother Andrew there. Let's read those verses again. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, verse 1, Esau came, and he came with 400 men, and notice he divides his family. And verse 2, he put the hands, handmaids and their children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and her children, Joseph, in the most. And he passed over before them and bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother Esau. And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. You just imagine the scene there on this, this great terrain as Isaac and, and Jacob approach one another. And, and Jacob is altogether different this morning, isn't he? Because he's a, he's a cripple. He has a, a permanent limp. And Esau would have seen that in the distance, and he would have detected that something has changed fundamentally with his brother. And suddenly, quite unexpectedly, he runs, and he embraces, and he loves, and he kisses upon the neck of Jacob. And you can imagine, Jacob is absolutely frozen on the spot. This is not something he expected. 
He had been building in his mind the worst case scenario and the, the fears had been fueling that picture in his mind. None of his worries that the face of Esau that had loomed large in his heart, none of them materialized. Isn't, isn't that the case, brothers and sisters? And we've reflected upon this thought a few times this week. But, but isn't that the case for all of us when we find ourselves in trouble and we, we kind of conjure up in our minds worst-case scenarios? And then when we meet that challenge, often it's never fully realized, is it? And, and I believe the reason why it's not fully realized because they are continual lessons from God. Put your trust in me, God is saying. And how hard we find it to do that. And this is the lesson of Jacob, isn't it? That Jacob, throughout this, this stormy life that he had, he was always protected. When you just look down in chapter 33, and you see there, Jacob had his whole family. Notice that in, in verses 4 and 5 and 6 and 7. He has his entire family. So there you've got, you've got the handmaids, you've got Leah and her children, and then you've got Rachel and young Joseph. And I want you just to... Try and imagine this picture. There you've got Jacob, who is now Israel. He's been transformed. This is a man who had the strength of God himself to overcome an angel for an entire night. And now the following morning, everything seems very different about Jacob. And I want you to imagine you are the handmaids. You are Leah and the children. You, you're Rachel and, and Joseph. And I want you just to picture a moment, young Joseph. And he looks at his father and he sees his father approaching his uncle, Uncle Esau. And no doubt they've heard so many tales about this terrible twin. And there he is and he's coming, not alone, but with 400 men. He sees his father approach Esau with this great army. He's limping. And as he approaches, he's not only limping, he bows. He bows. And he bows seven times. Can, can you imagine Joseph looking up to his mom, Rachel, and said, what's with that? You, you can imagine that, can't you? you? You can imagine a real conversation taking place with this family. They, they'd never seen Jacob like this. And Jacob is behaving in a way that is that is most unexpected for the reader because here he is bowing to Esau and he wrestled with an angel. He had the audacity to wrestle with an angel. And when the angel said, you need to stop, he said, I won't until you bless me. And yet now, hours later, lacking all sleep, he's got nowhere to run. He has to place his entire trust in God. He's totally subject to his brother. He bows. Seven times. And there was, there was the family, and perhaps the, the message had been passed down that the, the elder shall serve the younger, and, and now that the tables are all reversed. Jacob is now bowing. I want you just to, to reflect upon that. Jacob in this moment is reduced to nothing. Reduced to nothing. He's got no strength in him. And he bows. He's at the mercy of his brother. He's a cripple. 
Let's see what really is going on. The first thing I want you to notice, it's the use of repetition. This is masterfully choreographed by Jacob. It is a stage and it is a, a play, authentic play of humility. Jacob is making a point to his brother and to his family. And it is resoundingly loud. So the first repetition is, and I want you to imagine it, you've got the handmaids, you've got Leah and her children, and then you've got Rachel and Joseph, this man of destiny. You imagine Joseph, he's never going to forget this scene. And the great heights that, that Joseph is going to rise to. And there he is, his eyes wide open, he's watching this. He's never going to forget a moment of this. And the handmaids come to him. After Jacob has bowed seven times. And the handmaids bow. And then Leah and her children, they bow. And Rachel and Joseph, who had the dream that his entire family would bow down to him, he bows down to Esau. And in this scene, Jacob is saying to his brother, everything that I am, everything that I love, everything that I will become, is subject to you. Suddenly, the younger is now serving the elder. What this scene is all about, and we're going to see this picture built, it is establishing on this morning, the morning after the wrestling, that Esau is the firstborn. This is what the whole scene is about. And there's a reason. Esau is the firstborn. Notice something else. and Let's just trace this in our, in our scriptures, please. Now, Having bowed down seven times, Jacob is going to use a phrase or two phrases seven times. And they are all expressive of Jacob being the master or Esau being the master and Jacob being the servant. I want you to notice this. First of all, then, verse 8 at the end of verse 8, I've got these these little phrases here highlighted. It's worth highlighting it because it's, it's absolutely essential to understanding the narrative here. But, so verse 8, then the end of verse 8, my Lord, and, and you will know that Hebrew word, it's Adonai. It's actually a title of God. It's a title of the greatest of respect. This is a, a scene of total authenticity. Esau now is the master. He is the firstborn. And Jacob is his servant. My Lord, at the end of verse 8. Verse 13, at the beginning, my Lord, my Adonai. There in verse 14, my Lord, at the end of verse 14, my Lord. And then at the end of verse 15, my Lord, five times. And then it accompanies with a, another little phrase there. Have a look at the end of verse 5, thy servant. And then, second line down, verse 14, thy servant. Five plus two is seven. Seven times he's bowed, seven times 
he's referred to Esau as my Lord, my Adonai, or my servant, Eved. Seven times, Lord and servant, or wonderfully choreographed, a, a masterclass in humility. And what is seven the number of? It is the, the number of completeness. And in this scene, it was complete reconciliation. It was complete submission. And he wanted complete forgiveness from Esau. But there's two sets. The seven bows. And the seven references of Lord and my servant. And I would suggest, let's think about the Jacob framework. Oh, where have we seen two lots of seven in the life of Jacob? Well, he served for Rachel, the love of his life. Seven plus seven. And the whole family would have known that he served Laban two sets of seven in order to acquire the love of his life. But Jacob was a man of two sets of seven. And two sets of seven described Jacob's utter determination to fulfill that which he has expressed. And so Esau would have known right away, this is the Jacob framework. He's, he's very serious about today. But this is no tomfoolery. This is authentic. Can you imagine the scene and what it meant to Esau? And in all of this, it is screaming out to Esau that I now see you as my firstborn. 20 years later, separated two decades, two decades of, of worry and anxiety for Jacob. Who wanted that atonement. Remember that, that we looked at yesterday, that true forgiveness. And you can see that. It's, it's a very authentic scene. I just want us to, to think about these seven vows. And I believe there's a, we, we, we can retrace the life of Jacob in these seven vows. I, I believe that. I, I believe as he's bowing, that the memories of his life is, is rushing through his head. And, and, and when we think about Jacob, there's, there's been moments in his life, they're kind of life lessons. And I believe they're there are seven life lessons for Jacob that brings him to this moment. And I believe then that these seven vows can be viewed as a, an arc of redemption. And it's all consistent with the scene. He, he's, he's, he's longing for the forgiveness of Esau. And so I want you to imagine a cripple and he can't even exert any pressure on his thigh. And each vow, there's a grimace in his face. It's absolute torture, but he's going to follow through. Bow after bow. And Esau can see that this is absolutely torturous on this man's face. But he wants to follow through. Look at these. Look at these moments here. These are like seven big, big, big milestones in his life. Purchase of the birthright. There was one bow. The stealing of the blessing. The vision of the ladder. Serving of Laban, for Rachel and Leah. And then that other period, the other six years, when he increased in wealth, and then he finally leaves Laban's house. The wrestling with the angel, just the night before, that all builds, climaxes to that final bow, bow of reconciliation with 
Esau. And with each bow, the pain would just shoot through his Now again, this is, this is most unexpected. We've already seen this unexpected confrontation the night before. This is even more startling in many ways, isn't it? Jacob behaving like this as, he's, as, as his life has been building to that moment of, of transformation, of carrying the name of God's land and people upon his shoulders, and now he's subject to this, this evil twin, a, a man who's been marked by wickedness. We would expect, wouldn't we, a, a newfound confidence with Jacob. What has caused it? Got to look at our Bible. Let's have a look there. Let's read together verses 8 to 11. And, and, and we've got this, this little conversation. And as we read these words, doesn't it sound so pleasant? It's, it's courteous and civil. Again, a little bit of a surprise. But there's some big clues in what's going on. Chapter 33, then, and verse 8. So, first of all, then Esau begins... What meanest thou by all this drove? And you can just look to the previous chapter, verse 13 to 15, and you can see it's those 580 animals. And Esau's just simply saying, why have you sent me these, Jacob? What meanest by this grove which I met? Esau responds, these are to find grace in the sight of, there's, you've got the first one, my Lord. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother, Keep that thou hast unto thyself. And Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present. Okay? The present there is the present of the previous chapter, of verse 13 and verse 18. So it's, the, it's, it's picking up the same language of the, the previous day when, when Jacob send, sent that gift to Esau. I pray thee, if now I found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen thy face, as though I have seen the face of God, and thou wast pleased with me. Take, I pray thee, my blessing that is brought to thee, because God hath dealt graciously unto me, and because I have enough. And he heard, urged him, and he took it. So, so, so it's very civil, isn't it? The night before, Jacob, I believe, uh, thought he was wrestling with Esau. And now it's almost like a, a pleasantries or, or exchange around a, a dinner table between these two men. That, that's kind of the picture. It's all so awfully polite. What's really going on? Well, we have to look at a few Hebrew words here. But the first thing I want you to notice is what Esau says. And it's worth marking this up in your Bibles because you're not going to see the sense in the way that the translators have translated it into English. So Esau says, I have, which is the Hebrew word, yes, enough. And that's the word rab, my brother. In other words, Esau, first of all, he starts this very courteous conversation by saying, uh, Jacob, I have plenty. That's the idea. I have plenty. Now, Jacob replies in verse 11, take, I pray thee, my blessing, because I have, that's the word, yes. But now he uses a different word. You'll have the word enough in your Bibles, but it's not same Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word kol. And that word is very different because it means I have more than enough. I have all things. I have the whole of things. I have the total of things. Have you ever said that you have the total of things? That you have the total of all things? Jacob said, he has everything. 
He doesn't need a thing from his brother anymore. He has everything. He has the total of all things. You have it, Esau. I have the total of all things. A, a much, much stronger word. You keep your blessing, Esau. You might have enough, but you need it more than me because I have the total of all things. That's the idea of this little exchange that's going on. But there's something else. What motivates Jacob to say that I have the total of all things? Which is quite an audacious statement, isn't it? I have the total of all things. Of course, it's recorded here. It's guided by the Spirit. But to be in a position to say, I have the total of all things, you've got to be very confident that you have everything to say that. And he does. What makes a man or a woman say that they have the total of all things? What makes you and I say we have the total of all things? Well, at the end of verse 10, I have seen thy face. He's looking at Esau, a face that he's feared. I have seen thy face as though I've seen the face of God, and thou wast blessed with me. The night before, he had seen the face of God. And seeing the face of God had changed everything with Jacob. It had changed his perception of life. And a face that he had feared all his life. Remember verse 1 of chapter 35 when he goes to Bethel the first time and he goes there fearful of the face of Esau. And this was a face that he'd been thinking about no doubt every single day. And it was looming large in his mind now. And suddenly he comes across that face, a face that he feared. He looks closely at that face, and it's recognizable, but he doesn't see Esau. He sees the face of God. There's a, there's a radical shift in his perception. There's, a, there's an awakening to a much deeper reality. He sees that God is behind everything. Let's have a look at that. Go to uh, chapter 32. Let's just pick up a, a few little ideas here. We know that the wrestling here, the wrestling here, brought about the establishment of this place called Peniel. Let's just remind ourselves of that, verse 30. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, you'll note in your margin, the face of God, for I've seen God face to face and my life is preserved. So here in verse 10 of chapter 33, he's making reference to that Peniel. And I, and I said, didn't I, that the, that the kind of translation here misses something of importance because Peniel is not the face of God. It's the face of God by application. Peniel is two Hebrew words, just to remind ourselves. El is God, Pen is to turn. And so the idea of Peniel is to turn to the face of God. And if you turn to the face of God by inference, you're facing God. That's why it's called the face of God. But that hides the narrative, the transformation in Jacob. And, and Jacob saw the face of God because he turned his head. In other words, none of us will see the face of God. Until we turn, until we repent, until we confess and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we're not surprised with that because the, the Bible is inspired. The, the New Testament message is, is just picking up and embracing the old. These are Bible principles that run through all the accounts and all the stories and all the narratives. This is it. This is like the teaching of the gospel. This could be the Lord Jesus Christ or the Apostle Paul. But here, it's in the life of Jacob. So, so there is real emphasis here that the face of God, so we've got this contrast, the, the face of God and the face of Esau are now 
Jacob's got this new perception. He sees that God is behind all things, that God is orchestrating the events that are transpiring in his life. And when he looks at this fearful face, he sees the face of God. We, we understand that now. And, and, and now there is this permanent place to, to remind him, Peniel. If he ever forgets that, there's a, a permanent place, Peniel, after the long night with the, the, the wrestling angel. But the wrestling of Jacob was truly a, a fulcrum. It was a, a point of transition between the old Jacob and the new Jacob. I just want to highlight this for you. And, and you're going to see how this face of Esau is so predominant in this man's mind. We're, we're already in chapter 32, and I want to show you an example. It's on the screen here. And again, if you look in your English Bible, the Hebrew word is not jumping out. It will jump out now. But it illustrates for you and for all of us how preoccupied Jacob was with the face of Esau. But let's look at this then. 32 verse 20, we, we now know what this is all about. This is informing the messenger. You need to go with these 580 animals and, and this is all about my appeasement. Right? Look at this. Verse 20 of chapter 32. This is the old Jacob. This is the, the Jacob before the wrestling. And the, the word face, and you may know this, it's the word panim. But it's a well-known Hebrew word, panim. Let's just see how loaded this word is in this verse. So this is the instruction that Jacob gives to his messenger. And say to, to Esau, and say ye moreover... Behold, thy servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him. That word appease him is the word panim. It's the word face it. I will appease him with the present that goeth before me. That's the Hebrew word panim. And afterward, I will see his face. That's the word. And you see why I call this theme the faces of Jacob. And afterward, I will see his face, panim. Peradventure, he will accept of me. So, so look at that there, and you can see what Jacob is saying. I will appease him. I will wipe away the anger from his face. That's the idea. With the present that goeth before my face. And afterward, when I see his face, after he's received this present, when I see this face, his face, he will look at me and accept my face. Can you see this? So now you've got the face of God. You've got the face of Esau and the face of Jacob. These are all the faces that are kind of jumping around in his head. And later, and we can't even touch on this, there's something about the face of Joseph that happens in Egypt. It's an amazing subject, but we don't have time to do that today. But this idea of the face really was the dominant theme in his life. And he's worried about the face of Esau and his face. And suddenly, the only face he cares about after the wrestling is... The face of God. I want us just to, to reflect upon that in a moment. For a moment. That the face of Esau was a symbol of his deepest fears, wasn't it? This mighty hunter. But Jacob had wrestled with an angel all night long. And if you're wrestling with an angel face to face, the one thing you will never forget will be the eyes. The eyes of that angel, the eyes of God, will have burned into his mind. 
And so suddenly now he looks at the face of Esau and it's gone. It's vanished. All he now can remember is that face of the angel that he fought with for an entire night and who blessed him. Did you see that? And isn't that a powerful lesson? Suddenly Esau, who symbolizes in the life of Jacob an enemy, a challenge, a foe. And now he comes face to face, the final confrontation with his enemy, his sworn enemy. And he sees the face of God. If only we could be like Jacob. With all the challenges and the giants that loom large in our life, that come and challenge us, often on a regular basis. If only we could see that in all of them is the face of God. That God is behind everything. Can you see what's happening to Jacob? Suddenly the pennies dropped. He now realizes that this, this wicked twin that he had was all God in tension. God was behind it all. God knew how Esau was going to turn out. God knew that he was going to swipe the blessing and the birthright, and that was going to be the catalyst. This was going to be the, the refining moment that was going to send him shooting on his path. A path for what? What was the path? How does it end? That's the moment God wanted Jacob to come to, where he sought forgiveness. Now God is going to work with this man and bring him to great heights. Great heights. I personally believe that in the land of Egypt, he saves his entire family, including Joseph. Come and chat to me after. He doesn't put a foot wrong in Egypt for 17 years. And he reminds Joseph, on the brink of death, don't forget the land. Don't forget the promises. Don't forget the seed, Joseph. Have a reader. What's recorded of Jacob and Joseph in Hebrews 11? There's a story. There's something else equally powerful. If Jacob saw God in the face of Esau, he saw something divine in Esau. Now, we haven't seen anything divine at all, have we? But Jacob did, because Jacob recognized that Esau was also a child of God. And as a child of God, that child deserves respect and love. You know, brothers and sisters, we, we've been talking about this with Brother Mike, haven't we? we? We have difficulties from time to time in ecclesial life and in families. But if we could see each other with the face of God, that we've all been called, that God wants us all in God's kingdom, then, then suddenly those, those difficulties that we have get cast aside, don't they? Those problems, those, those grievances and grudges are, are put into perspective. And I believe it's only by seeing the divine in each other that we find true peace in families and our ecclesia. that there's another word that jumps out in chapter 33. I want you just to, to go there now. And it's the word blessing. I just want you to, to notice how this little formula works. It's very subtle. In verse 10, 
those 580 animals that Jacob sends Esau is referred to as a present. I want you just to, to notice that in verse 10. And now in verse 11, it changes. Jacob annotates it differently. He refers to it as my blessing. Did you see that? It's a present in verse 10, but suddenly now it symbolizes something else. It becomes my blessing. Now we're on the well-known path. We know all the blessings about Jacob, don't we? Look at that then in verse 11. Take, I pray thee. It's not only a blessing, but my blessing. So I want you to notice that. He's, he's making, he's, he's owning this blessing. This is my blessing, Jacob has said. This is mine, and I give it to you. I really want you to notice that. This is my blessing. There's, there's such an emphasis there on the personal. And now it is yours. Well, have a look. The present in verse 10, as we've seen, and as we've said here in verses 13 and 18 of the previous chapter, it is the word present again. So the present suddenly becomes a blessing. And now Esau knows exactly what this is all about. Suddenly they zoom back two decades. And we come to the fateful day. Shall we go there? This is, the, this is kind of the fulcrum of his entire life. Brothers and sisters, when you're studying the life of Jacob, use Genesis chapter 27 and Hosea chapter 12, and you won't go far wrong. Let's have a look. Genesis chapter 27. And, and this is the blessing, isn't it? Let's just have a look at this now, because we want to tie up some loose ends. We're now back 20 years. They're, they're kind of locked, both these two men. They're looking at each other, and not a word is said, because their memories just go back to this fateful day. Verse 28, then, of Genesis chapter 27. So then, you remember this. This is the blessing that Jacob received under the guise of Esau, a blessing he should not have received. Have a look at it. Therefore God give thee of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. Let people serve thee and nations bow down to thee, be Lord over thy brethren, and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee, cursed, be everyone that curseth thee, and blessed be he that blesseth thee. So we talked about, didn't we, when we looked at Genesis chapter 27, that this was political power and agricultural prosperity. And if you look at those two verses, you see that. And perhaps we could summarize that as power and wealth. That's an easier one to understand. It was all about power and wealth. And that goes to Jacob. And the intention was for Esau. Now we look at verse 39 and verse 40. That was then the blessing that Esau gets. And we know that that blessing is a curse. And because of the curse and the faith of Isaac to express that curse, Isaac now hops into Hebrews 11. It was a moment of faith for, for Isaac. His greatest moment of faith, even Esau. Remember that? Even Esau. He blessed Jacob and it was hard. Even Esau. And then we come to the blessing of chapter 28. There's another blessing. So many blessings, aren't there? There's another blessing. And now Isaac knows it's Jacob. Come up here, son. I've got something for you. And let's just read 
what he says. And it begins there in verse 3, El Shaddai. Looked at that, haven't we? El Shaddai, bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee, that thou mayest be a, a multitude of people. That's the ecclesia, the true family of God, the, the family of Abraham. Jew and Gentile, that's the promise to Jacob. What an amazing promise. Give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee and to thy seed with thee, that thou mayest inherit the land. I've got the word seed and land. Suddenly, seed and land appears, and it goes to Jacob. Wherein thou art a stranger. There he is, we've read that. That was Hebrews 11. He was a stranger with a, with a tent with Abraham and Isaac. That's how Abraham appears in Hebrews chapter 11. In that tent. Thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger, which God gave unto Abraham. So this is an altogether different blessing. It is Abraham at the core. The and you've got a land. That is the Genesis 12 promise, and it goes Jacob's way. Isaac never intended to give the Abrahamic promise to Esau. Isaac never intended to give the Abrahamic promise to Esau. Although Isaac was virtually blind, and we see there in chapter 27 that Jacob pretends to be the face of Esau. I am Esau, thy firstborn, he says there in verse 19. It wasn't the blessing, it wasn't the blessing that he was supposed to get. Jacob receives this blessing of verse 28 and 29 of chapter 27 that should have gone Esau's way. Suddenly now everything makes sense. Esau hated his brother. He didn't want anything that was God-related. But Jacob was entirely the opposite. This was a man who loved the promises, who loved the land, who loved God's coming kingdom. Brothers and sisters, Isaac was a man, a faithful man. A faithful man. But he loved his boys. Can you criticize him for that? He was a father. Esau was his son. And he loved him. And Esau did something that made him, made him incredibly proud. He was a hunter. Hunter in the forests. A mighty hunter. And he came back with the venison, and it was a, a special moment, a special moment for him and his son. Together, they would eat the venison together. What a moment it was, as he smelt and he savoured the entire experience. And he knew. Isaac, in Genesis chapter 27, he had spiritual 2020 vision. He wasn't dim. He knew exactly what was going on. He loved his boys, and he would give them both that they desired. What did Esau want more than anything? He wanted the double blessing of the land. That's all he wanted, the double blessing of the land. 
And the double blessing of the land is verse 28 and 29 of Genesis chapter 27. That was supposed to be Esau's. And what's interesting about this, can you remember when we were looking at the privileges of the firstborn? That the first privilege was that someone was dedicated to God. Remember that? The priest. Remember that? And then the second one was they had the authority of the family, someone who was going to take on a caring role. And the third one was the double blessing of the land and the inheritance. And what wise Esau was doing, it's almost like he's breaking away item, kind of packaging it all up, and he says, this is all you wanted, Esau. And he'd be a happy man. Everything that was spiritual, God-given, family-orientated, land and seed was coming Jacob's way. All that Jacob wanted was the blessing. And Isaac knew that. And he had qualified himself. And it was coming his way. And although here in chapter 33, that, that, that Jacob is, is, is pretending that, that Esau is the firstborn. Only the firstborn of the land. Only the firstborn of the land. The spiritual blessing firstborn. Was Jacob. You see that? Now, if you reflect upon that for a moment, you might be thinking, well, is that an exceptional case? No. You mentally go to Genesis chapter 49, and old Jacob, who's gone through all his experiences of life, and he's now blessing his boys, and he looks to Joseph. Joseph, this amazing man that, 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 that Jacob actually bows down to. He recognizes that this was a figure of the coming Messiah. What does he give Joseph? The firstborn. And he breaks. And he gives the blessing to who? To Judah. And why does the blessing go to Judah and not to Joseph? Because Judah was a man of reconciliation. Judah too had gone on a journey and he knew that in order to be acceptable by God, he needed forgiveness in his life. And God says, that's the pattern of the blessing. I need men and women of an ecclesia that recognize that they need forgiveness and they will confess their sins and they will turn around and repent. And that's the blueprint, the blueprint of Judah. Here's Jacob, like a Judah figure, bowing and recognizing the authority that Esau had as the firstborn of the land. Isn't that wonderful, brothers and sisters? Quite astonishing. I want to show you now, because I think you've just accepted what I've said, I want to show you that this is all true. <laughs> Look at this. So if you can, it's a bit of an exercise. If you can, keep your finger in Genesis chapter 32 and, and go back to chapter 27, because these are... These are the two critical chapters here of the, the before and after, 20 years earlier. And what I believe is happening here 
It is absolutely that Jacob is making Esau his firstborn. His natural firstborn. And what I believe is happening is that he's giving back, literally giving back the firstborn status. So the first thing I want you to notice is this present. I've mentioned it a few times. Chapter 32, verses 13 and 14 and 15, the 580 animals. And those animals were a present. And we've already seen that the present becomes my blessing in chapter 33 and verse 11. And he gives it. And I believe those 580 animals are a symbol of wealth. Wealth that he had acquired in Laban's house. What was the first part of the firstborn status here of chapter 27 and verse 28 that Jacob had taken from Esau? The dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. And in this gift, Jacob is saying, it's yours now. Not quite there yet. It's yours now, brother. It's yours. Then think about this choreographed scene, the seven times bowing and the servant and my Lord. I believe that that symbolizes power. He was making Esau powerful. What's the second part of that blessing there of chapter 27 and verse 29? Let people serve thee and nations bow down to thee be Lord over thy brethren, and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Quite literally. And there he is seven times. He bows the knee to Esau. Take it. It is yours. I am complete. I have everything. I have need of nothing. I now see the light. You take it, Esau. I should never have taken it from you. You forgive me. Please forgive me. I was wrong. Esau, listen to me. I've seen God's face. Now everything makes sense. We've already looked at Colossians today with Brother Mike. In the following chapter, set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. The big lesson of Jacob. And so what's interesting then, when we think about the before and after and chapter 32 being the fulcrum of the, the before and after Jacob, it's interesting because we, we did look at the names of Jacob and Esau and we went in deep with the meaning of those names. And what I'd like us to do now is just to step back and reflect upon those names, because we, we highlighted how they were different yesterday, and what I'd like us to do is just pause for a moment and see the similarity in these two names as well. If you think about Jacob, at its core, it means to struggle. And if you think about the name Israel, at its core, it means to struggle. There's also a similarity between these two names as well, if we'd not notice. And in this, we have the story. Can you see? The name of Jacob was to struggle with Esau. The name of Israel is to struggle with God. 
And as you're struggling with Esau, you see the face of Esau. And when you struggle with God, you see the face of God. That's our journey, brother. What a journey it is. And in these two words of Jacob and Israel, God is telling Jacob, in the past, Jacob, you've held the heel of Esau. You've now got to hold on to God. And for you to hold on to God, you've got to let go of the heel of Esau. And I tell you something, Jacob. Once you hold on to God, once you hold on to God, he's never going to let you go. And suddenly, Jacob sees his entire life a life of providence. You know, one day, brothers and sisters, in God's good grace, we're going to look back upon our lives and we're going to see. I believe for many of us, many moments in our lives when we were rock bottom, when we were broken, when we felt that we were nothing. And when we look back, in God's kingdom, at our lives, when we've been at that point, we're going to realize that those were the moments when we were wrestling with God. Those were the moments that real transformation was happening in our lives. And as we look back upon our lives and we see those moments, we will know, won't we? that the only thing that we could summon up at that time were tears and prayers and supplication. And there will come a day when the greater than Jacob will come and we will be transformed. And a new identity will emerge. A new child of God that bears the name of Israel. A prince with God forevermore. Forevermore. So brothers and sisters. Let us, as we reflect upon the life of Jacob. With all our hearts. With all our hearts. In the peaks and the valleys. In the famines and the feasts. In the highs and the lows. Let's, let's resolve within our hearts. To say, I will never let you go, Jesus. I will never let you go. I'm going to hold on for dear life until you bless me.